from your, from your word as we said, our daily bread. Lord, we want to we want to receive what you have for us tonight as we study your word together. So bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, please be seated. Isn't it great that we get together and we worship, and it doesn't matter what, what genre, what type, what your favorite style might be, um, you know, whether it's contemporary or just, I love, I love when Mike leads us with some of the, the older uh, Calvary songs, the older hymns, just such a, such a blessing, and uh, just being able to worship together. What a great, great, great thing that we get to do, and you know what the really cool thing is? We're going to do it forever. <laughs> I, we, I just got, I, the, my last couple of weeks have been kind of crazy. Um, went to Israel, got back from Israel uh, Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock, went home, showered, shaved, got back here for church Saturday night, took our guest speaker out for dinner, got home in time to sleep for a couple hours, get up Sunday morning, a couple of services, and then went down to Tucson. I've been in Tucson for a pastors and leaders conference, got back at 3.30 this afternoon. So if I fall asleep on, up here, give me some grace. Just just somebody come up and shake me. Um, but... Uh, one of the last speakers that we had down in Tucson um, was talking about that very thing about worship and the fact that we're going to be worshiping forever. And he goes, he goes, guys, that's what goes on forever is our worship. He goes, we as pastors, we're going to be unemployed in heaven. <laughs> there's not going to be, there's no, there, there's no more preaching and teaching going on in heaven. It's just going to be all worship. And uh, what, a, what a blessing that's going to be, huh? Well, hey, we're in Second Chronicles. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't, grab one from under a seat in front of you. Second Chronicles. We, last time as we finished First Chronicles, we saw now King David, at the end of his life, he, he passes the baton, if you would, off to his son Solomon. We talked about the fact that, that David had put together all of the materials that were needed, all of the lumber, all of the silver, all of the gold, all of the bronze, all of the iron. He had accumulated all of the necessary building materials to build the temple. Uh, he had got, he arranged all of the labor. He had all of these things David had put into place. He, he took care of the, the priests and, and reassigning some of their duties because once the temple will be built, they will no longer have the responsibility of setting up the tabernacle and some of those other things. So, so their, their roles reassigned a little bit, if you would, and then giving the blueprints, the plans that God had given to David, giving them to Solomon. And then Solomon now stepping into his role as king, David now, now is, is dead, and that's where we pick up now, Second Chronicles, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. And I find that interesting just as we even just start this out. It says that Solomon established himself securely. And I think all of us would, would like to have that security, right? When, 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 when it is, no matter what it is that we're doing, that we could, that we could say that it were established securely in that. And what is the secret to that? Well, it tells us in the second half of the verse that the Lord God was with him and God exalted him greatly. It wasn't Solomon that did this. If you just read the first half of the verse, you know, now Solomon the son established himself securely over his kingdom. If you just cut that off right there, you'd think, well, Solomon did it. And if Solomon did it, let me tell you, it wouldn't be securely. He wouldn't be established securely. It's, he's only established securely because God did it. Because God exalted him. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, as we're reading through that verse that, that Peter tells us, that goes exactly the opposite as what the world would tell you. If you want to be secure, 
You don't humble yourself. You know, you have to, you have to get ahead of everybody. It's, it's, you know, you have to be on top if you're going to have the security of all of that. You got to take care of number one, right? If you're going to be secure. But the Bible tells us, the Word of God tells us, guys, no, it's, the, it's, it, it's exactly the opposite. You want to have security. You want to know that what it is that, that you possess is secure. You humble yourself. You cast all of your anxiety on the, on the Lord because he cares for you. And I speak from personal experience in this. And I'll just, just real quickly. But I had at one point in my life had, had gotten this point where, where I had, was successful in business. I had saved up a lot of money, had a lot of investments, a lot of different things going on. And I, I could probably say, you know, I had established myself securely, but I wasn't secure as a matter of fact, I, I lost a lot of sleep. I'd be up midnight, one, two in the morning, couldn't sleep, got to think, okay, tomorrow morning I got to do this, I got to move this money over here, I just I got to get up, I got to check the stock market, I got to do all this other kind of stuff. There was no security in that. And you know what? It all went away. God took every bit of it away from me. And you know what happened? The, the, the night that... That, and I'll save you the long story for now. But he did. He took it all. I've never slept better in my life. Because you know why? It's not my problem anymore. <laughs> he said, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. He'll take care of all the rest. So if that's our focus, if that's our, our thing, again, casting all our anxiety on him. Everything that we're worried about, all of the things that we're, we're stressed out day after day, cast all of that on him. Security comes with that because he cares for us. It's his problem, not ours anymore. He promised he'll take care of it. And he made a promise to David that was then handed off to Solomon that Solomon would be king. That it would be his kingdom. And because God promised that, God sets this up, the Lord was with him and he exalted him. I love also how Peter says this in his, that he will exalt you at the proper time. He'll do it in his time when he knows it's right for us. And not to lift us up again to, for pride and so that we get noticed and everything. As a matter of fact, if that's what we're looking for, it ain't the proper time. He'll exalt us. He will be the one. And that's what takes place here with Solomon. And he, he, he can be secure in this again because the Lord is the one who exalts him, and notice, exalts him greatly. Verse 2, Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and every leader in all Israel and the heads of the father's household. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought the, brought the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place where he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. And we know that. That's what we've studied, in, you know, again, in First Chronicles. Now, the, the ark has been brought to Jerusalem, waiting for the temple to be built, but the tabernacle is still here in Gibeon. So that is where Solomon now goes. Where the bronze altar still is, as we see in verse 5, the bronze altar which uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made. He was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. This, this bronze altar was actually the same one built 475 years prior to this event. And it's interesting when we look at that back in Exodus chapter 31... We see this same Bezalel mentioned here. Verse 2, the Lord called to Moses, See, I have called Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic design for work of gold and silver and in bronze and in cutting the stones for the settings of carved wood. That he, may be, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And there we see it's, again, a gift of God, this craftsmanship, this ability to do this type of thing. It's a gift that God gave to this man. He used it to glorify God. And here we see still 475 years later, 
here, this, this altar here is still being used, and Solomon comes now to bring this offering. Verse 6, Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. A thousand burnt offerings Solomon brings. Now, I don't know what kind of runs through your mind when that, just that, the thought of that. A thousand burnt offerings. First of all, that, that's an expensive proposition. A thousand burnt offerings. That was costly. But does the word excessive cross your mind? I mean, let's just say, okay, let's, let, let's, let's understand. We understand what sa- the sacrifice means. We understand as for sin. So all of us as Christians would, would, would say, in our, it, no, that's not excessive. But let's look at somebody from the outside. Well, that's kind of excessive. Wouldn't one be sufficient? Well, they're probably the same ones that would respond that way to Romans chapter 12 where it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Many people look at us as Christians, and we understand this, that says, okay, we're, uh, the sacrifice that we're called to make, understanding that Jesus has, has paid the price for us, for our sin, but the reasonable response to that the reasonable service of worship that Paul tells us in Romans 12 is that our bodies, our lives, should be given as a living sacrifice to God. Same thing, sacrifice. A sacrifice is set apart and a sacrifice is completely consumed. Our lives set aside as a holy living sacrifice. It's not a partial thing. It's not what we're called to do. It's, we're called a living sacrifice. And the, the world looks on and says, well, that's kind of excessive. Wouldn't it be all right if you just go to church on Sunday for an hour or two? But that's not, what, that's not what we're called to do. That's not what Romans 12 is talking about. Our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. That's our entire life lived out to the service of God. Totally sacrificed, set apart, consecrated, and given to him. It's interesting when it, it continues here, it says, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it gives us the reason. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the amazing thing is, as we do that, as we give our lives as a living sacrifice, it tells us that in that process, we can then here discern the will of God for us in our lives? It tells us that that's perfect for us. Perfect. When we see what happens next as Solomon then gives this, this sacrifice, this thousand burnt offerings, seeking the heart of God. Listen to what happens next. Verse 7. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said to God, you have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people For who can rule this great people of yours? I'm challenged by this every time. We studied this back when we were going through 1 Kings. Same thing here. God appears to Solomon. And let me just remind you, Solomon is probably 18 years old at this time. Still a young man. God appears to Solomon and says, ask me whatever you want. Blank check. What would you ask for? Wisdom, knowledge, yeah, whatever. <laughs> if God appeared to you and said, I'll give you whatever you want. Now, I, I guess the thing that, I, the point I want to make with this is when, when we look at this and we see this, understanding that what, I, what we read in Romans chapter 12, 
understanding the will of God, understanding the heart of God. In, in 1 Kings, the account in 1 Kings, it tells us that, that Solomon says, give me an understanding heart. Literally, that means give me a hearing heart, an understanding heart, so that I can hear and I can understand from you, God, and I can have the wisdom to govern and rule your people. Let me just tell you, an 18-year-old, I don't care how, how great a dad he had, outside of God placing that on his heart, he's not asking for wisdom. That's God's heart in Solomon asking for that. And Solomon's simply obedient as God lays that on his heart. As we diligently seek after God and we, and we desire him, and we, we look to that, it tells us he will give us the desires of our heart. But what, again, what that literally means, he's going to place his desires in our heart. As we give our lives that living sacrifice, we understand and can discern his will for us, and we simply say, God, that's what I want. Because I understand it's perfect for me. And that's, that's what he lifts up and he asks for. God placing that in his heart and him responding. Give me, give me wisdom, give me knowledge, give me an understanding heart so that I can rule this great people of yours. Verse 11, God said to Solomon, because you have had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I've made you king, Notice verse 12, wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. God has already granted that request to Solomon. Have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor as those who will come after you. So Solomon went from the high place, which was at Gilbeon, from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. God said, because this is what you've asked for, I have granted it. I've given you this. And because you didn't act in your selfishness and, 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 your, and your flesh, asking for riches, for wisdom, for, for victory over your enemies, for a long life, notice he says, I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as no other king has ever had. These, these gifts, notice again, I, I like the tenses that are used. This has been given to you. These will be given to you. Now, it's interesting, though, when we see the first Kings version, it says uh, in verse 13, I believe it is, yes, I have also given you what you have not asked, riches and honor, so that there will be no, no, none like you. I have given. Here it says, I will give. Is there a contradiction there? No, because God's promises are as, it's as good as done. I will give. You can know that we have that. His promises are sure. I hope you were here this weekend and, and heard the message that we got from Pastor Lloyd Poley. If you didn't, Go online and watch it. It was a, he had a great great message for us out of Second Peter chapter one, and I go there again now because it says to us here, Peter writing, "Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus, uh, God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him." who are called by his own glory and excellence, has been granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Has been granted. We have that. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Those things yet to come. But they have been granted to us. And because they've been given to us and they're his promises, guys, we can count on them. Absolutely, 100% certain that it will take place. 
He goes on, and as Lloyd mentioned this weekend, he talks about this, applying all diligence, supplying moral excellence to your moral excellence knowledge, to your knowledge self-control, to your self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, brotherly kindness and love, those things that we are to add. And then he finishes up, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. That's a promise that we have as well. All of these things are ours. But we have to, we have to put them into practice. They're given to us, but we have to use them. If we don't, it's just like anything else. If you are given something that you receive as a gift, but you never use it, if I give you the keys to a brand new car, and you say, oh, great, hey, thanks, and you put them on your shelf at home, and you never put it in the car, never drive the car, what, what benefit is that to you? You see, I think it's interesting that, did you notice the thing that God, God says, since you didn't ask for, and he gives a list, and then he says, I will grant you, and he gives a list. Did you notice one of the, the thing that was left out? Victory over your enemies. He says that, that's in the list. You didn't ask for victory over your enemies. But then he doesn't say, I will give you victory over your enemies. Now we know that Solomon never will have to fight a battle against the Philistines or any of the nations. There's peace in the land when it comes to that. But Solomon had enemies. His flesh. His fleshly desires. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And God gave him everything that he needed to have victory over those things, but he did not use that, and he lost every one of those battles before he'll die. It's unfortunate. That's the, that's the sad side of the story. We're not going to see that in Second Chronicles. It's, it's chronicled for us in First Kings. Second Chronicles does not cover that in depth. But Solomon, well, because of the lust of the, of the flesh, he will amass for himself a thousand wives and concubines, and they will take his heart away from God, just as God said it would. He will amass for himself and accumulate for himself, himself wealth. And we'll see that in just a second, a little bit. But these, these things, he did not, he did not, possess his possessions he did not utilize those things that was given that were given to him and he would eventually lose those battles you see guys god gives us everything we need for a life of godliness but we have to use those gifts purposely in our lives in order to live a godly life They have been given to us. They have been granted to us. But we have to walk it out. We have to, again, we have to take it to, we have to fight the fight. We have to fight the battle. From a position of victory, yes. But utilizing those, those great and perfect gifts that we've been given. I think it's interesting, too, again, just one last thought on this as we look through it here. The, the heart of Solomon when he makes the request. Solomon starts off great. <laughs> and he's a very wise man. I mean, again, there's, there's great stories, and we're going to see some at the, the, over the next few weeks as we go through this. Solomon, great man, great wisdom. Loved the Lord at first. And God granted the request. Notice first, it, James tells us, why, why, why is it that we don't have what we, what we need? Because we don't ask. Okay, so Solomon asked, right? He heard God. God said, ask what you want. So he asked. What's the second reason why we don't have what? So that we use it on our own desires. James says you ask and you don't, you don't have because you ask with selfish motives so that you can use it on yourself. Again, Solomon's heart was one that said, give me this so that I can govern your people, so that I can be a blessing to you and your people. And God answered his request. Well, here we'll see, and again, the, the chronicler does not tell us these things, as, you know, that this is a problem. It's just kind of stuck in here, if you would, in, beginning in verse 14. Solomon amassed chariots and horsemen 
He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king of, king of Jerusalem, or in the, yeah, with the king of Jerusalem, sorry. The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamores in the lowland. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Q, and the king tra- king's traders procured them from Q for a price. They imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver apiece and horses for 150 apiece. And by the same means, they exported them all to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Deuteronomy 17:47. God says, speaking through Moses, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set him as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, verse 16, you shall, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses since the Lord has said to him, you shall never again return that way. So where did he go to get the horses and chariots? Egypt. Again, it says, don't, don't multiply horses. Don't go to Egypt to do it. Here's verse 17. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. God's command. Don't do it. Solomon did not listen. The wisest man who ever lived didn't listen to the counsel of God. The most foolish thing anyone could do. And it will eventually be his downfall. Now, this obviously is taken a little bit out of sequence. This, this is, happens later on in his, in his career. He amasses this great fortune and multiplies all of these wives. But it's stuck in here in these verses. Now we're going to jump back in chapter 2, back to shortly after, just within a couple of years of when he prayed for this wisdom. And if you want the, the, the backstory or the, some of the stories that are missing, I encourage you to read 1 Kings chapters 3 through 10, somewhere in there. Kind of gives you some of the stories and parallels what we're looking at here. Chapter 2. Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord, a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 to supervise them. This is a major undertaking. Then Solomon sent word to Huram, the king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build him a house to dwell in, so do so for me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, dedicated it to him, to burn fragrant incense before him and to set out the showbread continually and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on new moons and on the appointed feasts of the, of the Lord our God, this being required forever in Israel. The house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all gods. Verse 6, but who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? Solomon, in his great wisdom, understands that this great structure, this building that he's going to build, can't contain God. It will be a place where they worship God, where they can meet with him. But it certainly can't contain him. The heavens can't contain him. Now send me a skilled man to work in gold, silver, brass, and iron, and in purple, crimson, violet fabrics? And who knows how to make engravings and to work with the skilled men whom I have in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided? Send me also cedar, cypress, amalgam trees from Lebanon. For I know that your servants know how to cut timber of Lebanon, and indeed my servants will work with your servants to prepare the timber in abundance for me, for the house which I am about to build will be great and wonderful. Now behold, I will give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut the timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat and 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine and 20,000 baths of oil. Another great 
thing that we see in Solomon, even with this great wisdom and all of these things, again, early on in his life, notice his humility still. He humbled himself with the request that we saw, and we've looked at that already a bit, but notice his humility. He goes to somebody else and says, I need your help. I need help in doing this. This is an an enormous undertaking that I've been given, but I need some help. Guys, don't ever get to the point where you're too proud to ask for help. (laughs) We're never meant to go through this thing alone. And I like this too, it's, and it, it wasn't just help, just, hey, do this for me. It's, hey, come alongside me. Come alongside my people. Train us. Show us. You have a gift that, that we don't have. Come alongside us and, and help us with this and help us to learn it. Again, great humility in Solomon here. Then Huram, the king of Tyre, answered in a letter sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people... He has made you king over them. And Huram continued, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now, the language that this king is using sure makes it sound like he is a believer in Yahweh God. We don't know that for certain, but if he is a believer in Yahweh God, total, you know, a, a, forsaking all other gods, we don't know that for certain. But if he is, it's because he witnessed the life of David. Because he didn't start out that way. He's the king of Tyre. He was a pagan, worship, worshiping pagan gods, total pagan. But if he did come to forsake all of that and follow the one and true and living God, as it seems the language would seem to indicate here, it's because of David's influence. As we see that here and how David had dealt with him. Guys, never underestimate how your lives can influence those around you. We always need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Don't, don't get in the ditch on the other side of the road that says, well, I'll just live a good life in front of them and, and from that hope that you know, it rubs off. They, you, you need to tell them the truth. You need to share the gospel with them. But, guys, never understand the power in your testimony of living that life in your neighborhood, in, in your workplace. People see that you're different. Huge influence here, obviously, that David had on this king. Verse 13, now I'm sending Hurim Abai, a skilled man endowed with understanding, the son of a Danite woman and a, and a Tyrian father. So... Jewish mother, foreign father, so part Jewish, this man that's coming, who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, violet, linen, and crimson fabrics, who knows how to make all kinds of engravings and to execute any design which may be assigned to him to work with your skilled men, with those of my Lord David, your father. Now, verse 15 Now then, let my Lord send his servants wheat, barley, oil, and wine, of which he has spoken. We will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you on rafts by the sea to Joppa, so that we may carry it up to Jerusalem. Solomon numbered all of the aliens who were in the land in Israel following the census which his father David had taken, and 153,600 were found. He appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads and 80,000 to quarry stones, in the mountain and 3,600 supervisors to make the people work. The construction of the temple we see now in chapter 3. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now that's, that's an important piece of the, of the puzzle as to where it is being built, Mount Moriah. We're first introduced to Mount Moriah when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, to take him and, and sacrifice him on the altar. And he, he is obedient to the point where he builds the altar and, and puts the wood and he actually ties up Isaac and he puts him on the altar. And just as he is about to sacrifice his son, God calls out to him and says, enough, stop. I know now that you would, you would go that far. Nothing would stand between your relationship with me. 
I will provide myself a sacrifice. And there, initially, he provided a ram caught in a thicket. But the sacrifice that was pointing to was that his son, his son, Jesus, the perfect lamb, who would be sacrificed on Mount Moriah, Calvary, same, same place, same mountaintop as in Jerusalem, just being there last week. We're, we see that, that the Mount Moriah, that's where Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is, just outside of that area, Calvary, where Jesus suffered and died in our place. Mount Moriah, that place, we looked at this, David bought the threshing floor of, of Ornan, remember that? We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, Mount Moriah. All of this, right in this, this little spot of real estate. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem out on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. He began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. So he's in his early 20s at this time. Begins the construction. Now these are the foundations which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length in cubits, according to the old standard, was 60 cubits and the width 20 cubits. The porch, which, which is in front of the house, which is long as the width of the house, 20 cubits, and the height 120, and inside over it, overlaid it with pure gold. He overlaid the main room with cypress wood and overlaid it with fine gold and ornamented it with palm trees and chains. Further, he adorned the house with precious stones and gold was gold from Parvium. He also overlaid the house with gold, the beams, the threshold, the walls and its doors. He carved cherubims on the walls. Now he made the room of the Holy of Holies. Its length across the width of the house was 20 cubits. Its width, its width was 20 cubits and overlaid it with fine gold amounting to 600 talents. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper rooms with gold. Verse 10, Then he made two sculptured cherubim in the room of the Holy of Holies and overlaid them with gold. The wingspan of the cherubim was 20 cubits. The wing of one of the five was five cubits and touched the wall of the house, and its other wing was five cubits, and it touched the wing of the other cherub. The wing of the other cherub of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and its other wing was five cubits attached to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherub extended 20 cubits, and they stood on their feet facing the main room. Now, verse 10 through 13, I just read through that, but let me just explain this to you real quickly, because these verses to me blow me away. Two cherub, cherubim that are built in this room. And the total wingspan is 20 cubits exactly. And it tells us that the room width is 20 cubits exactly. These are massive structures. And it says that he did. Solomon didn't. Solomon didn't build this. He obviously had someone else build it. An unnamed person. We don't know who did it. But somebody... This is the cool part, all right? It tells us that one of them is touching... The tip of its wing is touching the wall on the other side, 20 cubits, it, a cubit is a foot and a half. So we're talking a 30-foot span. The other, the other angel's wing, cherub's wing, is touching the other wall, and in the middle, they're touching. This massive structure, and that's how perfect the details are. Now you might say, okay, so what's the really big deal about that? When this is all done, do you know how many people are going to see that? One person, once a year, goes into the Holy of Holies. This isn't going to be out for public display. This isn't going to be out for everyone to see. This isn't going to be out so that everyone can say, wow, look at what Bob did. Or whatever his name is. One person, once a year, the high priest goes behind the curtain. And let me tell you what else is going to be behind the curtain. 
the Ark of the Covenant. So let me ask you, do you think he's going to be looking at the cherubim? He's not even going to see it. Nobody's going to know. Nobody knows this guy's name. God does. Nobody's going to see that, man, they touch just perfectly over here. And right in the middle, they touch just perfectly. Nobody's going to see that. God does. God knows that. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it all out as for the Lord. Because it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Not for men. Don't take shortcuts. Don't, don't say, ah, oh, you know what? Nobody's watching. Nobody. No. We do everything as unto the Lord. I, I've shared this illustration before, but it, it's something that stuck with me. When I was in, when I was in college, we had this, the, the, the business, the school of business. I was a business major, and the school of business was open 24 hours for, for business students to go down and study and do that kind of thing. Well, that was attached to this, this other building where we had our classes and the, and the lunch area or the, the cafeteria area, the bookstore, all this other kind of stuff. And one night, I, I, I left the school of business instead of going towards the dorms. I just went the other direction. I don't remember why now. But when I walked through that, there was this big, wide, it was probably about as wide as the sanctuary, the hallway where all the students would walk and along one side was were all of the classrooms and on the other side were the hallways that led down to these other areas well it was a concrete floor and i walked out it was probably i don't know one two in the morning after i got into say i walked out and it was it was shining the floor and on the other end was one guy the janitor and he was down on his hands and knees looking across the, across the floor to see if he missed a spot. And it struck me thinking, who's going to notice that tomorrow when a bunch of knuckleheads like me are running late to class? There's going to be footprints all over this place by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. But that didn't matter to him. Now, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but that stuck with me as, that, guys, that's how we should do everything. It doesn't matter if anybody else sees it. God does, and we work for him. And you know what? Other people do see. They see us going that extra mile. They see us doing those extra things. And again, if we are like we're supposed to be, and they, they know that we follow Jesus, that we serve him, that should be... That should be one of those things that, that, that is that living testimony for others. I mean, I, I can't wait to meet this guy that, that took that, that much care, that much detail. I wonder how many, <laughs> they, the, the first time he puts them up, they don't touch in the middle by that much. We've got to start all over. I mean, I, but when it was all done, we don't know his name. God does. And God saw it. God made sure it's recorded here and in 1 Kings. Verse 14, he made the veil of violet, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he worked, worked cherubim on it. He also made two pillars for the front of the house, 35 cubits high, and the capital on the top of each was five cubits. He made chains in the inner sanctuary and placed them on the tops of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates and placed them on the chains. He erected the pillars in front of the temple on the right and, on the, and the other on the left and named the one on the right Jachin and the one on the left Boaz. We will we'll stop there. That's a good place to stop. We'll see. 
I do have, um, I put together, uh, or we dug up the video from last time when we went through this in First Kings. We found a video online that kind of kind of walks us through the temple really quick. It's kind of, you know, this little 3D animation, but it kind of gives us a little, a little um, look as to artist rendition of what that looks like. So if we could roll that and then we'll pray. I won't narrate it. You can just kind of follow along. very specific um, measurements and everything are given in First Kings. Well, yeah, um, if you were here this last weekend, you know um, we had an announcement about a couple of elders um, within the church, um, and if you don't, it maybe probably haven't heard yet, um, Dave Patton uh, finished his race yesterday and went home to be with the Lord, and we don't, we'll have more details this weekend about um, memorial service, but Jeff Talbot, um, another one of our elders, um, has had had seizures lately and found um, earlier this week that or last week that he has a, a brain tumor the size of a golf ball, and um, he had his surgery yesterday, and it went well. But I'll just read it. The text I just got from Pastor Brad. 
um, who went to see him. I'm wondering if you could, you're at the church, if you could ask Brett to check his text message before you do this. I would like for him to be able to report to the congregation this good news. I just saw Jeff and beheld a miracle. He got up out of bed and greeted me with a hug as if nothing had happened. He is expecting to be released as early as tomorrow. There will be no need for physical therapy at all. It is just absolutely amazing. God is amazing. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so good. Lord, I first, I want to thank you for, for blessing me, for blessing Calvary Chapel Surprise with the privilege of knowing Dave Patton. been such a such a faithful servant of yours been such a blessing to to me personally lord but to this church and he finished his race well and lord we know he is with you now and we rejoice in that fact we ask lord that you would comfort barb and the family during this time and lord, we look forward to our our reunion. But Lord, we want to also take this moment and praise you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy that you have poured out in, 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 in this great news with Jeff. Uh, Lord, the, I, I look forward to getting more details, but Lord, we thank you. We praise you. You are so good. he is able to get up, that he's able to be released, no physical therapy. I, Lord, it's just beyond words. You are amazing. It is a miracle. It is your hand, and we give you all, all praise and all glory. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in it this evening. And Lord, we desire to always be challenged and changed by your word. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a, have a good rest of the week. My soul.